when me and my wife moved into our home uh, going on two years ago, uh, we wanted to change our pendant lights. Anybody? You, you know what I'm saying? Uh, they just, they weren't what we really wanted. And so uh, we changed the one in the dining room because the ceiling wasn't that tall in the dining room. Uh, and we found one at a resale store, uh, emphasis on retail, uh, resale store. Uh, and we bought one that was matched it just a little bigger. And we wanted to hang it in our entrance, but the entrance ceiling is a little bit taller. Uh, and I knew I needed some help. And so we called a handyman and he got his ladder uh, and he started crawling up the ladder into the ceiling, and I just thought, better you than me. Uh, but as he, he was up there, I handed him the pendant, and he, and he hung it up, and he wired it together, and he sealed it, and it was looking great. And he said, all right, flip on the power. And I walked over there, and I said, here it is. My wife's going to be so proud of me. Yeah? And flip it on, Nothing. Nothing. And so I thought, well, this is going to turn into a hostage situation because you're not leaving until that light turns on. And so we were working and thinking, and I was sitting there just puzzled and frustrated. And then after I thought about it, I said, you know, electricity is not so complicated, all right? It's been going on for a while. And I thought, there's only a couple of things that could be going on right now. And so as I was thinking, I thought, aha. I got up and I ran into the garage. I swung open the electrical panel and I flipped that breaker on. And uh, he was on the ladder. He said, Eureka! It's not what he said, but it's what I was saying in my heart. Uh, the light came on and I thought, there it is. There's the power, right? The power wasn't there, although I knew it was there. It just wasn't being applied. It wasn't being applied to the light because it wasn't flipped on. The breaker wasn't flipped on. I think... When it comes to the Christian life, there's one or two things that happen. Uh, one, when it comes to the resurrection, that is the resurrection power of Christ, uh, people don't recognize that there's real power in it. It's, yeah, it's hung up. It looks, we all look the same. It's, it's there. It's a pendant. It's up in the air. But it is not lit. Like There's no power to it. And I'm afraid that that's a lot of what people who profess faith in Christ look like. It's like it looks like it. It plays the part. But it doesn't actually do anything. Uh, and so what I'm hoping this morning, as we look at the text in Romans 6, and I wish you would turn there with me in your Bible if you haven't, Romans 6, uh, I hope that if you are saved, that if you've turned from your sin and placed your trust in Jesus Christ to be your righteousness in the presence of God the Father, that's what salvation is, right? Uh, that this morning will serve as an opportunity to flip that breaker, right? To say, you know what? I, I know I knew Christ because I turned from my sin, I placed my trust in him for my salvation, but I didn't really grapple with the application of the resurrection of Jesus in my life today and every day until I meet him again. I haven't really grappled with that. And so I pray that like my light pendant for you, if you're saved in this room, you've genuinely turned from your sin and placed your trust in the Christ, that this is a, a breaker flipping moment for you. My prayer also is maybe you profess faith in Christ or maybe you even don't, but that you're not saved in here, and maybe you can recognize that there's also the power of the resurrection awaiting for you if you would simply respond to Christ, that you would respond to him because the reason that he died on the cross and rose was that your sins may be forgiven. And so regardless where you are on the spectrum this morning of salvation, 
this sermon is for you. And so as we look at Romans 6, here's the main point you need to know. That the power of Christ's resurrection enables you to live effectively for God today while eagerly awaiting your own bodily resurrection at Christ's return. That's the whole point of the resurrection applied to your life. This is why the resurrection matters. This is why so many of you, whether you knew it or not, got up this morning, got real nicely dressed, drug your kids out of bed, threw them in the car, yelled at one another on your way here, and when you parked, you said, everybody smile. (laughs) You may not have known it, but all of that is because of this, that the power of Christ's resurrection applies to your life today, and it also applies for your life eternally. And we've got to recognize, as we flip a breaker on, it's meant to put electricity where it needs to go so it'll shine a light. In the same way, the resurrection in the life of the believer empowers us to live effectively for God right now. The resurrection power of Christ is not just for eternity, although it is. Don't let anybody tell you it's not. But I believe that so many professing Christians believe that the power of the resurrection exists for the future. But the reality is, so much of the power of the resurrection has to do with our life right now. But it also allows us to eagerly await our own bodily resurrection at Christ's return. That's the culmination of the power of the resurrection that we will be raised just like Christ was raised into eternal life with him. That's what we're going to look at as you look at Romans 6. But you may need a little bit of background on Paul's conversation with the church in Rome. Uh, He's talking to them about what salvation is. He's basically writing them a letter, Introduction to the Christian Faith. And so there are some really important fundamental principles that we need to understand here as we jump into Romans 6. And I'm just going to give you two that's going to get you right where you need to be for the rest of this sermon. Two verses. You don't even have to flip to them. In Romans 3.20, Paul makes it clear. He says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. He said, listen, by no meritorious work on your own, no matter how good-looking you are, no matter how good you think you are, no matter what happens with your acts and your good works, none of those things will make you justified in the sight of God. That means when you stand before God, no good thing that you're ever going to do is going to make you right in his sight. You're still stained and sinful. But he says, as he continues... No keeping of the law will make you justified before God since the law came uh, to give us knowledge of sin. And so here's what we need to know. The law is good because what the law does is it helps you have a mirror that you look up and you say, ooh, I I sinned. Like, for instance, the Ten Commandments. Raise your hand if you've ever broken one of the Ten Commandments. Raise your hand. And if you didn't raise your hand, you broke the Ten Commandments because you're a liar. Okay? (laughs) All right. So now raise your hand. We all sin. It's a mirror. Did you see how that? We all learned really, really quick. We put the mirror up. We're all sinners. And so that's the good part of the old law, that it tells us that we're sinners. Now, you got to know that if you're going to look at Romans 5.20, two chapters later. It says, the law came in to increase the trespass. That is, the more laws that you are aware of, the more you recognize that you fail all of them. And it's helpful for you because you realize just how far away you are from God. The more laws, the more sin. But he says, in the rest of that verse, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so he's saying, all of the sin in the world cannot keep the grace of God from coming in through Jesus Christ. 
Like, there is no one who can outsend the grace of God. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no one that is too bad for the gospel. And that's what he says. As sin abounds, as you recognize more and more and more that you're a sinner, then the grace in Christ abounds all the more and more and more. The grace of Christ always abounds above the sins of people. Right? That's, that's the extreme nature, the controversial nature of the gospel, isn't it? What do you mean? Even the murderer? Even the murderer. Even the apostle Paul who murdered and rejected God? Even the apostle Paul. Like, even you? Yeah, you. Isn't, that's the extreme power of the gospel of Jesus Christ displayed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at Romans 6, 1, that's when, as we're looking at the practical application of the Christian faith, as we look at the practical nature of the resurrection of Jesus, because it's practical, right? It's not just ethereal. It's not just nebulous. It's not just hanging out there in, in the universe. It's really tangible, and it means something for you and me right now. We can look at Romans 6.1 and begin to understand what the resurrection means for you and me who are in Christ today. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Paul asks a question like he all often does because he knows what these people are dealing with. They're asking questions and he tries to answer them for them as he's carried along by the Spirit. And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Because that is the question that people who want to take advantage of the gospel like to ask, isn't it? So if you're telling me grace abounds, then you're saying that I can't out-sin grace. That means the more I sin, the more grace I'm going to get. And Paul says, yeah, that's true. Uh, and they say, well, doesn't it stand to reason then that the more God's grace is evident, the more glory he gets? Yeah, that's true too. So they're going to say, well, then logically, the more I sin, the more glory God gets. And he says, no, that's not what this is about. This is not a license for you to sin. He's like, the fact is, this is good for people who have royally screwed it up, which is all of us, to recognize that none of us is outside of the saving power of God in Christ. But when I'm saved, I have been and dwelt with the resurrected power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, and therefore I'm not going to live in that sin anymore. It's verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, by no means. That's like Greek for absolutely not. No, that is absolutely not going to happen. And here's why he says this won't happen. It's not just his opinion, you understand. Paul's very logical. And he begins now laying out the picture of why it's impossible for those who have been saved by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to then live in the sin that they were freed from. So let's look in verse, the rest of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now that's logic if I've ever heard it. Okay? Uh, you may have been to a funeral. You may have known people who have died. Okay, and you recognize some things. They're not looking at their calendar for what's going on tomorrow. Right? People who have died aren't concerned about what's going on here, and they're certainly not concerned about the struggles that they're having because they have none. They're dead. And he makes that point. How can we who are dead still live in sin? We're dead to it. You're right. It has nothing to do with our lives anymore. Right? The power of sin is not applied in my life anymore simply because I'm dead. And then he explains how that works in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
Now, that's simple, but kind of complicated because there's this word in there that we got to understand, right? The word baptized, right? That, now, that's a religious word if you've ever heard one, isn't it? Okay, baptized. What does that word mean? Well, it's important for you to understand something about the word baptism. Uh, there's a lot of words. Most words that we have in our Bible are translated from Greek, Hebrew, or some Aramaic into English. So you just know what it means because they translated it, right? You following me so far? There are some words in the Greek particularly, that are not translated, they are transliterated, okay? And transliterated means instead of telling us what it means, they just slap that bad boy over into English and say, figure it out, okay? Which is hard, isn't it? There's a lot of words in the New Testament that it's hard to understand. Uh, Apostle comes from the word apostolos. They didn't tell me what that means. They just said, they just threw it out there. Uh, Angelos is the Greek word for angel, Okay, uh, Eucharistia, you may, if you come from a mainline denomination or know a little bit about the Catholic Church, uh, the Eucharist, right, which means Thanksgiving. But a lot of times they just throw those words into English without actually telling us what they mean. Uh, baptizo is one of them. That's the Greek word for baptism is baptizo. So what we have to do is we look at the text, we have to say, well, what does that word mean? What does that word mean so I can apply verse 3 to my life? Well, the word baptizo. Tidzo means to be submerged or to be plunged or to be placed into. So when you hear the word baptize, it means to be placed into, to be plunged. Now, look at verse 3 again with the understanding of that word. I'm going to replace the word baptize with the word placed into. Do you, not, do you know now that all of us who have been placed into Christ Jesus were placed into his death? That made a lot of sense now, didn't it? Okay, but don't you know, we, why can we not live in sin anymore? Why does the practical application of the power of the resurrection allow us not to live in sin? Because we have been placed into Christ, and we were placed into his death. Now, these are all uh, common definitions of what it means to be saved. To recognize why did Christ have to come die, and why did I have to be placed into him to live, to be saved? It's simple as this, that Christ had to die on our behalf because before the God of the universe, who is the creator of the universe, right? God's in charge. He created everything. It's all his. Uh, and then he gets to be the boss, right? He gets to say, this is right, this is wrong, this is up, this is down. That's blue, that's green. God's also a just God, which is what you want, right? We want a, we want a government that's just, amen? Mm, okay. You want a God that's just, don't you? Some of us do. Most of us don't. Because if God is just, that means no sinful action, no, nothing that he says is wrong can be overlooked. Just like in our government, all wrong has to be made right. It all, there has to be uh, an execution of some kind of judgment or justice has to be paid. Well, in the same way, we all agreed earlier by raise of hands that we're all have broken the commandments of God. We've broken his law, therefore we are legally guilty. There has to be payment and justice made. And so Christ comes down, sent by the Father, to come be the justice for those who would place their trust in him. You see, he comes down, lives a perfect life, because he has to uphold the law, right? Jesus can't look at the Ten Commandments and say, well, I'm guilty of those too. Or he would not be a sacrifice that can save us. But he upholds all of the laws perfectly. He's morally perfect and ethically, ethically perfect, and he's sacrificially perfect, given the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. He kept all of those things perfectly. 
And so therefore, when he died on the cross, he died as a perfect sacrifice. That means now that those who would be placed into him are now placed into his death as a substitutionary death. That I understand that the penalty for my sin is death. As a matter of fact, Romans 3.23 says that, doesn't it? For the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is what I'm due is death. I get paid when I meet God, believe it or not, and so do you. Uh, And if you aren't in Christ, you get paid the wages that you earned, which is death. And so Christ took that death and died on the cross. Along with that, all of the sins of all of those who had turned from their sin and placed their trust in Jesus Christ. You see, it's a substitutionary death. So when we look at verse 3, it says, Don't you know that all of us who have been placed into Christ have been placed into his death? Just as Christ has died, we have then died with him. Him as our substitute. And now that we've been placed into him, God looks at us no longer as the guilty party, but as the innocent, righteous people in Christ. You see, being placed into Christ now means, as I've turned from my sin that nailed Jesus on the cross, all my sin was born on him, God's justice was poured out on him, now I get to, without actually dying, that's the good news, right? I didn't have to die for my sin, Jesus did it for me, and now when I stand before God the Father, he looks at me and he sees his son. Why is this important? Because you ask, does the Father love me? Well, if you're in Christ, the Father loves you like he loves his son. Okay. How do I know that I'm secure in the Father? You're as secure in the Father as the Son is in the Father. You see, being in Christ means so much because it's no longer about you and your goodness and your faithfulness. It's all about Jesus' faithfulness and his perfection and his righteousness. And when you stand before the Father, he sees Christ. Now that's important, isn't it, when it comes to the justice of God? Because we all will stand and account. As a matter of fact, Scripture says it's appointed once for every man to die. And woman. It's just the Greek word, anthropoi. So it's men and women. Okay? So it's appointed once for everyone to die, and then comes judgment. So we all know this is this is everybody's future. And so when we stand before God, we're gonna have one or two things happen. God is gonna look at you and see Jesus. Mm. Or God is going to look at you and see you. You see why it matters that you're in Christ. Because either he took the justice that you deserved, or you will take the justice that you deserved. Now, with that gospel definition, read that again. Do you not know that all of us have been placed into Jesus Christ? Amen. We were placed into his death. As he died, we died He died as our representative, and now I am joined to him. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by being placed into his death. Just as Jesus was placed into the tomb, you as a Christian, if you're a Christian in here, you look at your life the same way. As Jesus was in the tomb, you were in the tomb. Okay? He was in the grave, you were in the grave. That's what it means. You're, You're dead. Just as we know for sure that Jesus died on that cross and was put in the tomb, you know for sure that you also died and you were in that tomb too. So that... You notice in verse 4, it says, in order that, or so that, or therefore, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I want you to notice that. Why did Jesus raise from the dead? It's for the glory of the Father. It was, for, it was that God would be glorified, that people, you're all here right now, doing what? Glorifying God the Father because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It literally fulfills this text. And now it says, just as Jesus was raised for the glory of the Father, look at what it says in the rest of verse 4. Now we too, we too, might walk in newness of life. The reason for the resurrection of Christ in the Christian's life today until we meet Jesus again is to give glory to the Father by the way that we walk. It's a Greek word, peripateo. It means that as we go about, as we live our life, as we live every single day, we would walk in the new life that Jesus' resurrection has given us. You see, this isn't just about positional righteousness. Because when we hear about the gospel, we're like, well, I am. I'm pronounced. I am judged righteous before God because of Jesus Christ. You are. It is a positional righteousness you have. But it's a righteousness that walks. Right? It's a living righteousness that you have been made new, and now you are walking the life that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. So the application for you and me as Christians is to begin walking in the life that Christ has been raised to give you. And with that, you need to put it, sum it up this way in point number one. You need to expect a new life with new desires. You need to expect a new life with new desires. 2 Corinthians 5.17, after you write down that point, maybe jot that reference down. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. I want you to notice that there. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Some uh, versions of Scripture say a new creature. But you are not the same. Of course, the outside, the hardware might look a lot the same. But the software is completely different. It's not just updated. I'm not just talking about an update here. We're talking about completely changed. You're giving a new software, new creation. You're not the same. The old you is gone. The new has come. You have been, you've died with Christ and have been raised with him. The dead is gone. The new has come. That is literally the transaction of the death and resurrection. That You've been made new. You look completely different on the inside, and it does start changing things on the outside. As a matter of fact, we have been, as Compass Bible Church, we have been in this building one year. We celebrated our first service in this building last Easter. And so if you haven't been back since then, welcome. Here we are. We're still here. Uh, (laughs) That was kind of funny. Okay. All right. Uh, (laughs) When, uh, when When we got into this building, I learned a little bit about the history before we started remodeling the whole thing. Uh, at one point, this building was a, a plating factory, and so they would take one kind of metal and plate it with another kind of metal to help with corrosion and all that good stuff. I watched the video on it the other day because I didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, there was a plating factory. Uh, it, it was a couple other things, and then one time it was a birdseed distribution factory or center. Imagine, look at me, birdseed, okay, parrot birdseed, right. finch birdseed. I mean, as far as you can see in this whole building, just birdseed upon birdseed upon birdseed. I mean, this place was completely different, wasn't it? And now, when you walk in here, it doesn't look anything like a birdseed distribution factory. As a matter of fact, I met the man who built this building in the 70s just a few weeks ago. He's a German man from Canada, and he just walked up, traveled all the way down here just to see the building. And I'm like, wow, that's commitment. And he was walking in, and I go out, and we put a lot of time and effort into this building, and I go up to him, and he says, are you the tenants in this building? And I said, yes, we are. And he said, looks just like it did when I built it. 
I said, thanks. <laughs> but as we began walking into the door, we opened the doors and he walked in and he said, whoa, this looks nothing like it did when I was here. You see, much like this building, I know we look a lot the same on the outside. There are some changes. I mean, the outside looks a little more manicured. It's a little prettier. But in, in large part, it looks the same as it did in the 70s when it was built. In the same way, you look a lot like you did on the outside before Christ. But when you walk in on the inside, it is completely different. Right? This building was used for man's purposes. It helped people climb up the corporate ladder. It helped people with their hobbies and with their desires. It helped employ people, put bread on the table. Uh, but now, it's used for God's will and God's plan and God's mission. When you walk into this building, it is a whole new ballgame. It is a whole new life with all the new plans and desires in this building. And that's the same thing when it comes to your Christian life. It may look a lot the same on the outside, but on the inside, you got a new life and you got new desires. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's a, a prophet in the Old Testament. His name is Ezekiel. Uh, and he was a mouthpiece of God to Israel. Uh, and he said this in Ezekiel 11, verses 19 through 20, uh, as he was talking about a future time when God is going to give a new covenant. Remember, the old covenant was the law that we talked about earlier that no one could keep. And the new covenant that we know now on this side of history is Jesus and him coming to die in our place. That's the new covenant, that if we trust in him now, we will be righteous before God. He says this about that time the new covenant of Christ. And he says this, when, when the new covenant comes, when Christ comes, verse 19, this is how people are going to be changed. I will give them one heart. He's talking about the nation of Israel. But here he says, I'm going to give them a new spirit. I'm going to put it within them. So he's like, not just Israel, but all of the believers, all of the nations, anyone who will turn from their sin and place them and place their trust into Christ, I'm going to give them all one heart. That's, that's called the universal church, the global church that we have around us. They're all going to have one heartbeat and he's going to give us a new spirit, and he's going to put it inside of us. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to take the sin, and I'm going to put in the righteousness. I'm going to take out the heart of stone that wants nothing to do with me, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh that is desirous of me to walk in my ways. And that's exactly what he says. He says this, I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. And in verse 20, it says, here's why I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Do you see that? Even the new covenant was designed today. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ was meant to put you in step with God, that you would walk with him today, that you would keep his statutes and keep his rules and obey him. And you say, well, 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 well you just tell me that keeping all the rules ain't going to do nothing. No, but you, you, have to, you misunderstand the law. The law tells you that you aren't righteous in the sight of God. But you, you tell me somebody whose life isn't aligned with the laws of God, you will find a person whose life is going pretty well. I mean, you, you can't tell me that if you don't murder people and you don't lie and you don't steal and then you submit to your mother and father and you don't commit adultery, life's going to be going pretty good if we can stay away from those kind of things, right? right? People who follow God's design in life, his words and his scripture, those are the people that he's given them a new heart. He's given them new desires and a new life so that they would walk with him. You recognize that's all of the history of the Bible. All of the history of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation has one common theme. God's desire to have a people who are walking with him. 
And the only way that was going to happen is with a new covenant because that's the only way that God can get stubborn, hard-hearted people like you and me to follow him is by changing us from the inside. And now this is what he says at the end of Ezekiel 11, 20. These people, they'll want to walk in my ways and obey me and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Did you see the, the union that God created? They didn't want to be my people. I'm going to give them a heart to be my people, and then I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. We're going to walk together. You see, the resurrection power in the life of the Christian today is that we would have a new life with new desires to walk with our Lord. So you ask, what does that look like? Well, let me give you one more scripture. Ephesians 2.10. Jot that down. Ephesians 2.10. Right, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not talking about all the world here. We're not talking about every person on the planet. We're talking about those who are the workmanship of Christ, those who are in Christ, those who are saved. Here's your purpose. I love, yeah, you like to hear these sermons, right? What's the will of God in my life? What's the purpose of God in my life? Here it is. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Did you hear that? You were created in Christ to do good works for God which God prepared beforehand. It's not that God said, hey, you're saved, kicked you out the door and said, go figure it out. He said, no, 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 beforehand, before even the foundations of the world, I knew you were gonna get saved. I had positioned you for salvation. I drew you to myself and I took that heart of stone out and I put a heart of flesh in and I said, I have all of these plans for you now to live your life for me in step with me. And I prepared them beforehand that you should walk in them. Did you remember that peripateo word that we heard earlier? There it is again, peripateo. That you would walk in God's desire for your life to be pleasing to him and to walk with him faithfully. That is the practical application of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because there is only one kind of people that are going to walk after the Lord with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all their strength, and that is a resurrected people. But I don't want... I don't want you to think that the resurrection application is only for the here. It's, it's not. It is for the here. And I think that many of us don't even recognize that so much because we think about it only as the there. And it is so much about the here, but it's also for the there. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, that the word united, uh, symphotos, it, it means to be connected to or to be joined with. Okay, since we have been joined with Christ in his death, we shall certainly be joined with him in a resurrection like his. There's your good news when it comes to eternity. Like, you're here because you believe that Christ actually died, amen? Most of us, good, okay. Then if you believe that Jesus died and was resurrected, then as surely as he died and was resurrected is as surely as you are going to be resurrected. It's something you don't think about too much, that you yourself are going to be resurrected as surely as you're here celebrating Easter 2023 is as surely as you're going to be resurrected in Christ if you're a Christian. There's the good news. If I am joined with Jesus in his death, I will be resurrected like him. Now here's, again, to create the dichotomy. Uh, if you are a person, you have a representative, Every one of you have a representative, and he's not, the, he's not in the government. Okay, You have a representative, and it's either Adam or Jesus. There's actually a theological term called uh, Adam is our federal head. Okay, You know what federal means. It means like that's not state law stuff. That's like federal law. You know, It's like the government has control over all of it. That's what federal means, right? Uh, 
Adam is our federal head. As a matter of fact, Scripture teaches us in Romans 5.12 that just as Adam sinned, he has now brought sin unto all people. So it's, he's federally our head. And so before God, if we're not in Christ Jesus, and we stand before God in eternity, and God says, who's your representative? You say, Adam. Then you say, that's not a good representative. Right? He sinned. Right? He brought sin to the whole world. Or... We have a hope to be joined with him in a resurrection like his because if you're in Christ, your representative isn't Adam, it's Jesus. So you stand before God the Father, and he says, who's your representative? You say, Jesus. And he says, amen, because that's the representative that leads to the resurrection of the saints with him. Now, believe it, everyone's going to be resurrected. People are going to be resurrected to eternal life, or people are going to be resurrected to eternal judgment. But we're talking about the resurrection that leads to life, and that's the point. We have to have Jesus as our representative. And we see in verse 5, it makes it clear that if we are in Christ, just as he was resurrected, you and me are going to be resurrected. And that should motivate us. As a matter of fact, that's point number two on your outline. I want you to write it that way. You need to be spiritually motivated by your future resurrection. Be spiritually motivated by your future resurrection. Sophomore year in college, uh, I was heading to science class, and it was pouring down rain. It was dreadful. All right, number one, I don't like the rain. Number two, I don't like getting wet. Number three, I don't like going to class. Okay, So it's like... This is my worst nightmare brought to life, okay? And so I'm walking, and my book and my computer and my soul are getting wet and drenched. And I'm walking to class, and there's something that I thought to myself that stuck with me for the rest of my life thus far. I said, there is coming a day where I ain't going to deal with this no more. Right? That's what I said. I literally did. And I said, I am going to walk across that stage one day. I'm going to snatch that diploma, and I'm out of here. And I am meant for far better things than walking through the rain to science class. I was motivated in my life to get out of there because I knew there was something better. Now, that's the life of the Christian, isn't it? We should be motivated about what is coming. And whether we're going through the rain or the storm and all the other analogies that you could use, I know life is hard here. Look, you ain't got to look any further than the person to your right or the person to your left to figure out how hard life is here. nobody's telling you it isn't. That's why the resurrection of Jesus matters, because life was so hard, there ain't nobody making it out alive. The only people who are making it out alive are those who have died with Christ and are going to live with him. Okay, life is hard. And you have to remember and be reminded and be motivated about your future resurrection, because it matters. That is a practical application of your of the power of the resurrection in your life, that it's leading to something. It's for the here and now. I'm going to walk with God. But it's also something in the future. It's also coming where I'm going to be with God. I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. We need to be spiritually motivated we need to be living life right now, and we need to be living in a way that we look to the future and say, I'm ready for that. I'm encouraged by that. Starting in verse 13 in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, Paul's talking to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And that's a euphemism. It means dead. 
okay? They're dead. And he said, I don't want you to be informed about those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's saying, listen, when people who don't have the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and their salvation, when people die, that's it, right? That this, this is their best life now, but not for, the, not for the Christian. He's like, I want you to know, not be uninformed, that we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. We have a hope. We have a resurrection hope, not just for today, but for eternity. And he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He says, those who have died, God's bringing with him through Jesus Christ. Just as Christ was resurrected, God's bringing people with him, just like he brought Christ to him. For this we declare in verse 15, to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, because there are going to be people who are still going to be on earth. It could be us. It could be a future generation. There are a people who are going to be here when Jesus Christ comes back. But here's what he promises. He says, if you are here when Jesus comes back, you will not precede those who have fallen asleep into the presence of the Lord. So he's saying this, if you're still alive here, those people who died are going to see, meet Jesus before you meet Jesus. So he's telling them, you guys are all like really hurt and upset about this. And you need to have hope because like you're not even going to meet Jesus before they bodily meet Jesus. Like they're going to go before you. You're going to be in the back of the line. They're going to be in the front of the line. So like who needs mourning now? You in the back of the line. Do you see that? Resurrection hope says this. Those who have died are going to be resurrected at the front of the line to meet Jesus. Now that's, that's some good news, isn't it? And he says this, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Do you see that? They'll be first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. That's the point there, right? We will always be with the Lord. Whether you're saved and alive, you're with the Lord now because you're in Christ. He's put his Holy Spirit in you. You're living for him every single day. Uh, when you die, your body is in the ground, but your spirit is with Christ. Now, you're disembodied, and I can imagine that's not going to be the best in the ever, right? So many of us look forward to being in heaven, but the real gift of eternity is he's going to put us in our glorified body and put us back on a renewed earth, right? That's the real glory of what's going to come. But we'll still, as we die, we're in the ground, uh, our spirit will be with Christ in heaven. And then, no matter what, we're going to be resurrected, and we're going to be joined with Christ. So did you notice the commonality there? Did you notice the one thing that did not change? Everybody's going to be with the Lord who is in Christ, no matter who you are. Whether you're here with him now in the spirit, waiting for him, whether you are out of body in the spirit with him in heaven, awaiting for the new earth, or that you're resurrected with him and brought down. We're all with Jesus all the time. There's the good news. So why are we upset? Because we're all with Jesus all the time. That's, that's what he's saying. Now, he said, that's good news, and here's what he says to do with that good news. Encourage one another with these words. That's your second person imperative, encourage. You need to encourage people with those words. How many times have you ever encouraged somebody with their future resurrection? Huh? Like, hey, you know what? I know life is not going well right now, but hey, Jesus is coming back. You're going to have a glorified body. Sin is no more going to reign. Death, sickness, sadness, none of that stuff. See, Scripture tells us that as Christians, we need to encourage each other and be motivated for that resurrection. Much more to say there. For the sake of time, let's move on. Uh, before we do, 
there is one scripture why you need to be motivated for the future. Uh, and Scott, our worship director, pointed out earlier, 1 Corinthians 5.19 1 Corinthians 5, 19 says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if we're making this life about here and now, Paul's saying if all we have is hope in here and now when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're to be the most pitied people on earth. But he says, but that's not the case. We aren't to be the most pitied people on earth because life doesn't end here. It continues into eternity. Therefore, we have the hope of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in the here and now and the then and there. We talked a lot about what it takes to live here in application of the power of the resurrection. We talked about being motivated by the future of us being joined with Christ eternally in our glorified body. Uh, but there's a lot left there when it comes to the application and how all that works. And Paul works us through that in verses 6 through 11. So I want you to look there. Romans 1, verses 6 through 11. We'll, we'll go through it together. Because it, it's showing you that there is a connection between living for now and living for there. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Like We're living for God here as we're waiting for God to bring us to him there. And so he says in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him. Well, we already talked about that, right? The behold, the old is gone, behold, the new has come. In order that, and here's the reason why you've been crucified, your old, your old self is dead, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, if you look at that verse, I don't believe it's talking about your body or my body. I don't believe it's talking about corporeally our, our flesh. What I, what I believe it's talking about here is the principle of sin, right? the body, the principle of sin, the dominating authority of sin. The power of sin. And he's saying this, that you have died with Christ in order that the principle of sin that is alive in the life of all people in the world outside of Christ will be brought to nothing. It'll be rendered powerless. And I believe that because of the next phrase. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right When the principle of sin is now rendered powerless, I'm no longer enslaved to it. I was enslaved to its passions. I, I couldn't even think about doing good things. And even if I tried to do good things, I noticed that I was still living in sin. You were enslaved to the sin and the principle of sin and its power. But if we've died in Christ, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 7 says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. So this is a continuing the slave metaphor of saying you are enslaved, captive, no way out. And now that you've died with Christ, you've been set free. You're no longer under the dominion and the power of sin. Now, you may sin. There may be sin in your life. But you're not overcome in, by its dominion and its authority and its power in your life. That means when you do sin, you can flee from sin. You're given the power of the Spirit to give you a way out of that sin. But continue there in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, which in Christ as Christians we have, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, I want you to notice something here. Because you are quick to go to the then and there, but you need to notice the present tense of the words here. Now, if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. Uh, this is about the, the then and there, you recognize, but there's an emphasis here in verse 8 about the here and now. Right? That if we've died with him, we also will live with him right now, here and now. That we've been given his spirit to walk in the newness of life, to walk with God in the here and now. And so, with the emphasis in the, the here and now, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
Okay, that's, that's just logical, right? He already died. He's not going to die again. This is important because when you read the Bible, there is some resurrections from the dead in the Bible, isn't there? Uh, you have Lazarus, right? He was raised from the dead. And then I can imagine a decade later, you know what he did? Died again. Jairus' daughter was another one. Okay, she was raised from the dead. And then guess what happened later? Died again. Okay, uh, but Jesus, when he died and was resurrected, he was resurrected into eternal life. Now, what's the difference? The difference is the purpose of miracles. And you must understand that the purpose of Lazarus, Lazarus and Jairus' daughter was this. They were microcosmic examples of the power of Jesus over death. They were there to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. And just as he would raise them from the dead, he tells the disciples over and over again, I will go and I've got to die I'll be buried for three days, and then I will rise. He says that a ton of times throughout the Gospels as he's preparing the disciples. And he's saying, just as I have the power to heal the sick, to heal the blind and the lame, and raise the dead here, that the Holy Spirit in me will raise me from the dead, and I will conquer death and sin on your behalf. That's what we said right here. That's why we know that he will never die again, because he has raised and conquered death and all of the previous resurrections you see in Scripture are there to point to his power to raise from the dead permanently and completely. And now, since he will never die again, it stands to reason that, verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, and death will no longer have dominion over him. Did you see the word dominion? That's the reason I can point up into verse 6 and say that body of sin can be brought to nothing because death no longer has a dominion. Did you see that? You see that word there? So because Christ is never going to die again, death has no dominion over him. Therefore, for those who have died with Christ, we no longer have sin dominating our life. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. It was a one-time event that was effectual for all of those who would turn from their sin and place their trust in the Christ. That was a one-time event that was for every single person who would turn from their sin and place their trust in the Christ that through the death of Christ, he might save people from their sin. Now notice this, the rest of verse 10. But the life he lives, as he's been resurrected, he lives to God. I want you to notice the purpose of the life of Christ. It was to, in his resurrection power, he ascended to the right hand of the Father to live for God. I want you to notice that. Where did Jesus ascend to? The right hand of the Father. What does that mean? That Christ submits himself to the will of the Father. He did it all throughout his life and ministry. He said over and over again, uh, Father, not my will, but your will. And again, when he's in heaven, enthroned in heaven, he is sending out the right hand. And the right hand of the Father means that he is following the will of God. That He's not the one on the throne. Now, he will be on the throne when he comes and rules and reigns because Scripture says that in Revelation that the kingdom of the world has now become uh, the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And so he, there's coming a time where he's going to reign over the world, but he's sitting at the right hand of the Father as he is in subjection under him. Although they are equal, he is humbling himself and serving God. That's, that's what the text, we see that here in the text. But he lives a life for God. Like even in the resurrection of Christ, in his power, he is living for the Father. That's important because of what 11, verse 11 says. That's the same attitude Christians should have. You also must consider. That's a word that says account or accredit it. You need to accredit yourself dead to sin and alive to God 
in Christ. Every single thing about your life as you have been empowered through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, you now live to God in Jesus Christ. Every day I am deliberately living for God. I want you to put it that way. Point number three on your outline. You need to deliberately live for God today. There was one time you had no ability to live for God. Now you do. There was a time you had no desire, you had a heart of stone, and now you've been given a heart of flesh. All of that to live for God today. I want you to turn to one last passage, 2 Peter. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 9, here's why we need to be deliberately living for God today. Because we know what's coming, we know the resurrection is coming, and there's something for us to be doing right now. Three, starting in verse 9, says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Right? That's the people, we're like, where's God? Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Right? There's questions that people ask. You know, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And, and it tells you right here, because he's not slow, he's patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What is keeping Jesus from returning isn't his lack of desire. It's actually his abundance of desire to see more people saved. And so we're waiting here for him to come back because he's being patient, desiring more people to reach repentance. But he's saying, but there is coming a day in verse 10. Look at verse 10. But there is coming a day, the day of the Lord, that it says, that that day will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Praise the Lord for resurrection power, because that's the state of the rest of the world for those who are outside of Christ. Since all of these things are going to be dissolved, verse 11, pay attention to this. Here's the point. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Right? Since all of those things are coming, what does this mean for the Christian what does this mean for the person who has the power of the resurrection flowing through their body? It means that as you're waiting for this day, what should your lives look like? They should be holy and godly. They should be walking with God because we know these things are going to pass away. I'm not, I am not, as I look at these things around me, I'm not drawn to them in any permanent way because I recognize they're all going to perish. Every, everything's going to pass away. But I need to recognize the things that are eternal are going to last forever. And I'm looking forward to that day. And this is what it continues to say. So what we're going to do is we're waiting for the hastening of the coming day of the God, of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But here is what we hope for. But according to his promise, his resurrection promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is why we don't sit here and want, want, want in this life. Because we're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Anything I buy here is going to rust. It's going to decay. It's going to be stolen. That's what Jesus says. But if I would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's going to provide to me all the things I need here. And he tells me to store up my riches in heaven. He says, that place, the new heavens and the new earth, those, that's where righteousness dwells. Here, everything that we invest in here, it's all going to be dissolved. Even if it's not going to be stolen here or you're not going to die and it's going to be left to someone else, as it says in Ecclesiastes, you know at some time it's all going to dissolve and it's going to burn. That's the promise of all the creation that we have with us right now. But for those who are deliberately living for God today, 
we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Some things to do. How do I deliberately live for God? How do you do that? I'll give you three C's. Right? As a Christian, we need to do some things. We're going to be deliberate. Right? We're going to make some decisions. And when it comes to the Christian life, there is some way in which we all need to make some practical changes in, in these three areas. We need to change our crowd, our conduct, and our calendar. Just briefly, you got to change the people you're spending time with. Right? There's going to be people who are going to draw you away from God that are going to make you think less about eternity and more about everything happening around us today. you got to change that crowd. As a matter of fact, there's not a better crowd to hitch your wagon to than the family at Compass Bible Church because what we're going to do is we're going to keep you focused on what is coming. The here and now for sure, but what's coming. Secondly, you need to change your conduct. Right? I know we don't like that, right? But you recognize that your conduct has put you in so many places in the way you are today. Right? No one's ever caused you more problems than you caused yourself. No one's ever sinned against you more than you've sinned against yourself. So you recognize there's a lot of areas in your life that aren't aligned with God's word. And with the power of the resurrection that we have in us, we can change our conduct and align it with the will of God. And we should always deliberately make a plan to live for God. And then finally, of course, our calendar. As a matter of fact, some of your calendars are so full, like mine can be, that we won't even think about eternity because I'm just trying to make it through lunch. And we got to make sure that our calendar is a holy, godly calendar, that we put things in our calendar that help us think about the future, that I make sure that I'm spending time with the Lord, that I make sure I'm never neglecting the gathering of believers, as it says in Hebrews, that I'm making sure that my calendar helps me live deliberately for God today. Because I'm concerned that so many professing Christians uh, live like this old parable. That you as a professing Christian live like a prince who's in the slums. And and the prince lives in the slums just simply because he doesn't recognize that his address is the palace. He likes the slums because he doesn't recognize what it means to live in a palace. In the same way, so many Christians live life not understanding the practical application of the resurrection. And they live this life not recognizing that there's really so much here for us to glean from and learn from when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we don't, that we don't realize. And we need to take that. And we need to recognize that our kingdom is not of this world. Our home is not here. My citizenship is in heaven. And I need to be looking to the, God, the word of God to show me how I can live with the understanding of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the power of the resurrection for our lives today. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this time as we celebrate Easter. And my prayer that this sermon, uh, God, helped us not just see the resurrection of Jesus Christ as an historical event, which it was, but to see it as an ongoing reality in the life of the believer that we have been brought from death to life that we have been uh, empowered to walk a new life, that we would walk in your ways, that you have taken the heart of stone and put in us a heart of flesh that we would walk after you. And I pray that there's people in this room who have recognized that they've never done that, that they've never turned from their sin and placed their trust in you, in Christ, and been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, so that when they stand before you in heaven, uh, they look at their representative and they point to Christ, and you see Christ in them. And I pray that there be people in this room, even this morning, who will recognize that they need to come to that decision to turn from their sin and place their trust into you. And then they too would be indwelt with your Holy Spirit, with the resurrection power, and be able to apply it in their life. 
But I pray that there's many Christians in this room that uh, recognize that we should also, as we're living this life for the Lord, be motivated by what's to come. To be motivated by the truth that we too will be risen like Christ. That we too will be made like him in glorified bodies with no more pain and no more sin and no more sadness. God, I just pray that as we await your return, that we would be deliberate in the way that we work, for, that we work and live our lives here for your glory. So God, even as we stand to sing one last song, that our attitudes and our hearts would match the words that we sing and that you would be most glorified. And all of God's people said, amen.